Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. It can be found on page 389 in your pew Bibles or 758 in the large print pew Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for giving us everything that we need for a godly life. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, Lord, we ask that you would continue your work of transformation in our lives, that you would continue by your word and by your spirit to change us from the inside out, and the people that you made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may remember in the book of Nehemiah, when we have the people coming back to Jerusalem after it has been destroyed, they've been in exile for a while, and they, have, they come back from Babylon to rebuild. And uh, they've been away for a while. Well, Ezra at some point, uh, gets up to read the, the book of the law, part of the Old Testament. And here's, here's kind of how that goes. We'll pick up in verse 7, go through verse 12. He's standing there with the, some of the elders, the Levites there. I'll let you read the names of them individually. It says, The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, and to to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. Turning then to our New Testament lesson, John 15, starting in verse 12 and going through the first verse of chapter 16, which can be found on page 876 in the Pew Bibles, or 1677 in the large print. This is Jesus talking with his disciples on the night uh, that he was to be arrested. John 15, starting in verse 12. He says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we have a difficult challenge before us. If you have seen the sermon title, you may already have an idea of what the challenge is. The sermon title this morning is, What's Wrong with the World? We have 20 minutes. (laughs) Andrew's got it already. We probably all have a lot of ideas that come to us immediately when we hear, What's Wrong with the World? And there are plenty of people who are ready at a moment's notice to chime in and explain what's wrong with the world. Um, But with all those voices, we're going to take a look at actually what the Word of God says about what's wrong with the world, and we might be surprised as to uh, what it says. We're going to take a look at this in a couple ways. We're going to answer this question, what's wrong with the world? Why is it as bad as it is? And then, secondly, we're going to look at it and say, you know, James tells us not to be friends of the world. To be a friend of the world actually means to be an enemy of God. And we're going to say, wait, wait, what's so wrong about the world that we can't be friends with it. Doesn't it say that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? So what's wrong with the world? Why can't we be friends with the world? So we'll look at both sides of that. And that's just, that's part one. But more important than just a correct, uh, accurate diagnosis, we also need a good prescription. And so then we will answer those two things again with what then do we do with the world the way that it is and why it's that way. What do we do? To get the answers to all of these questions in one compact little section, we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, which says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So there it is. Problem, diagnosis, and prescription for solution. So what is it James says is the problem? What causes fights and quarrels among you? We know there are fights and quarrels among us. We experience them on a daily basis, but we also know just even looking, looking on the news, we know that this world is a mess. We can actually count on it every single, di- every single night on the news. There will be a report of violence. Somebody harming somebody else. A whole group harming a whole other group. Fights and quarrels all over the place. That's the world we live in. We feel it. We see it around us. So where does that come from? And he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Here's what James is saying the problem really comes down to. Is we all have desires. Desires for the things of this world, with materialism, the things of, the, of pleasure and comfort, the things of power. And what we do as a people is we have our desires and we say, what I need to do is meet those desires. That's how I can be happy. If I can satisfy the desires that I have, that's my road to happiness. And then what happens is my desire for one thing conflicts with somebody else's desire and what we have been teaching each other as a culture for, for a long time is that your desires should be number one. And nothing and no one should get in the way of that. I heard somebody describing uh, recently a family where there's you know, some issues. Saying, well, what's going on there? And the person described it by saying, well, I've heard that uh, that household has never heard the word no. Okay, that says a lot. Unfortunately, as a culture, we have been teaching ourselves not to hear the word no. That no one should ever be told no for any reason. That if you have a desire and somebody says no, do not fulfill that desire, do not try to satisfy that desire, they're holding you back from your true self. What you need to do is try to satisfy that desire at all costs. The cost of those around you, trample over other people, that's fine. Trample over the law of God. That's fine. Because you've got to be true to you. You've got to to satisfy all of your desires. Right? Isn't that the message we hear? And James says, that's the problem. That's where the problem comes in. It's when we put our own desires at first place in our life. And everything else is to serve that. Can we be kind to other people? Can we follow some of the law of God? Sure, we can do that. Not a problem. As long as it doesn't conflict with our desires. But if there's ever an issue there, well, we've got to be true to our desires. And that's what takes first place in our hearts and in our lives. And that's where he says these conflicts come from. When everything else is there to serve that. 
You desire, but cannot have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And, gets better, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You follow that? What he's saying is, the reason that you don't have what you think you need is, first of all, because you don't need it. But it's because you're not asking God. You're saying, I've got this. This is what I'm going to go after, and I'm going to do it on my own, apart from God. And he says, well, then, that's part of the problem right there. On the other hand, he says, then, sometimes people say, well, no, 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 what you need to do is you need to ask God, and then you will ask and you will receive, Right? And so we're going to ask God, and he's going to give us whatever it is that we want. And James says, no, that's not how this works either. Because if that's the way that you're praying, if you're saying, boy, I think what would really make me happy is a million dollars. And so then we start praying, God, will you please give me a million dollars? Because I went out and I worked for it, and I found out I couldn't do that on my own, but now I realize I need God, so I will pray to him, God, give me a million dollars, and now he should answer my prayer. And James says, no. No. That's not how this works, because what's still number one in your life? It's not God. Now you're using God to serve your, still your own desires, which are still number one in your life. Does that make sense? Because the problem is, what's still number one in your life is satisfying your own desires. The church has taught for a long time, other religions have even taught for a long time, that if you just step back for a moment and think about it, it, it doesn't even make sense that satisfying our own desires would be the key to happiness. But we fall for the lie over and over and over again. This is one of the reasons why we encourage spiritual disciplines like fasting, which is a way of just teaching yourself, training yourself to say no to a, even a good desire, to the desire for food. It's a healthy desire. It's good to have that. But to say, this is not going to be first place in my life. My desires are not going to take first place in my life. By the way, fasting and dieting are not the same thing. (laughs) Going without food is not necessarily fasting. It's when we go without food for a specific time period and spend that time instead focusing on God and praying to him and saying, you, I want you to be the first place in my life. Nothing else. That's what the Bible talks about with fasting. It's a way of teaching us to not let our desires have first place. The next line, though, I mean, this is sort of the why do we not get along with each other? It causes fights and quarrels among you. Mm. But then he describes it in a way that if you've been in the adult Sunday school class lately will not be shocking to you, but if you have not, this may be a shocking line. He says, you adulterous people. That's what he says. Now, if you've been studying Hosea, you're like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Or God calls his people adulterous. And even calls a prophet to uh, play that out in real life. But if we are to be the bride of Christ, we are to be united to him as husband and wife, And yet we spend all of our time and energy and attention running after the things of this world instead of after him? We're committing spiritual adultery. And so he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is a tricky passage. What does that mean? When he says not to be a friend of the world, because to be a friend of the world means to be an enemy of God. This is one, if we don't get this right, we've got major problems. I'll tell you, first of all, what it does not mean. It does not mean that we are to be unfriendly to sinners. Now think about this. When Jesus was getting in trouble all the time, you remember one of the things that got him in trouble most? It's when he kept going and having dinner at people's houses who were clearly the wrong people, who had clearly sinned in these really obvious ways. And yet Jesus was friendly to them. In fact, the Bible talks about the world in several different ways. But when it says, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, then certainly that can't be the same sense that James means when he says we can't be friends of the world. We have to be friendly to the people in the world, just as Jesus was. So what is he saying we should not be friendly with? Well, it makes sense. It kind of goes along with what he's already been talking about. The context should give us that clue, but here's another clue. Do you remember what it was? Jesus kept getting people upset at him because he kept being friendly with sinners. But what was it that Jesus got really upset about? Do you remember? The time when he's actually turning over tables in the temple courts? That's when people were changing money in the temple courts. Buying and doing the buying and selling there of the sacrificial animals. Why is that such a big deal? Was, uh, was the problem just the business they were in? Was it a problem to be providing, changing money or providing the animals for the sacrifice? No. Not so much. But what was a problem is that the people who were doing this could justify it on the outside and make everybody say, we're doing this for you. This is for your own good so you can worship God better. But what was really going on is they were standing in the way of people worshiping God honestly. And what they were doing was not only obstructing people getting to God, but they were doing it in a way that would line their own pockets. And so they were using God and they were using people to gain material wealth. Doesn't that sound exactly like what James has been talking about? Saying if we're putting our desire for material things above our love for God and our love for people, that's the problem. That's the whole problem. And now you see why it was that Jesus was so upset about this. That the very people who were claiming to be helping people worship God were actually involved in a whole system of corruption and deceit. And Jesus says, no, we'll have none of that. And that's what James is talking about. When he says that we are not to be friends of the world, that means we cannot be caught up in the same system. We cannot have the same values in the same worldview that says, go after your own desires at all costs. And God and his law and his people are all to be trampled on as long as you can get your desires. James says, no, 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 no. We have been called apart from that. We have been set apart from that. We are to be a different kind of people. We are to be those who are like Jesus, set apart, different, holy, and yet still sent into the world to let them know the message of Jesus, the one who came not to condemn the world, but to save. Okay. This, by the way, is where he goes 
uh, next when he says, do you think, therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That's what God wants, to be with us. For us to be with him. That's been the, the picture from the beginning of creation, and it's the picture we get again in Revelation, when God is dwelling with his people. And it's what we see with Jesus himself when it says he's called Emmanuel, God with us. And then it says, but he gives us more grace. And that is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Because it's when we understand that we are to be so different. That we look in the mirror and we see in our own hearts, we look in scripture and we see, I don't live like that. In fact, in a lot of ways, I live just like the rest of the world. I do have thoughts that I wish I didn't have. I do say things I wish I could take back. I do get into that bickering and arguing that should have no part in the kingdom of God. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way, not to God's way, to our own way putting our own desires for respect, our own desire for power, our own desire for the things of this world ahead of God. But he gives us more grace. It's when we realize, when we come to the point where we say, I can't do this. I have no way to earn my way back to God. Try as I might. When we say, I can't, That's when we see the good news. God coming to those who are humble, the poor in spirit, those who mourn. And this is where we get the solution to the problem. If the problem itself is in our hearts, if the problem in the world is the pride of people, then of course the answer is going to be humility. But not just general humility, humility before God. And so it says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is a hard passage. We don't want to cry. We want to laugh. We don't want to be in gloom. We want to have joy. We don't want to grieve mourn and wail. And that, by the way, is why we also read the passage from Nehemiah. Do you remember what was happening when, uh, when, as, when the, the Levites were reading, reading the scripture? And the people were weeping. The people were weeping as they're hearing the words of scripture because they can see where, what it says. This is what life is supposed to be like. This is what life is supposed to look like when you are living in relationship with God. And they were bawling their eyes out because they said, we're not doing that. We are so far gone. We're hopeless. And they stopped and they said, whoa, you don't need to weep. You need to rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, no, you can't do it on your own. And that is cause to grieve. On the other hand, God is going to do it for you. And that is a reason to rejoice. It has been said that uh, every good sermon should be one that uh, comforts the afflicted 
and afflicts the comfortable. I believe that that's because it's exactly what the Word of God does. And so in a situation where uh, the people coming back to Jerusalem were hearing the Word and they were being afflicted, and they were saying, we're not going to, we can't do it. What they needed was a word of comfort, that God is there, that he is working on their behalf to do what they cannot do for themselves. On the other hand, if that's not where we are, if we're not broken in spirit, if we still are holding on to some sense of, I can, I've got this though, I, I can do this on my own, and we're going after the things of this world and chasing after the, the pleasures and the materialism, and we say, it's these things that will make me happy, even if only for a moment stomping on everyone else to get there and laughing all the way, James says, stop. Just put the brakes on right now. Stop your laughing. Stop your joy because it's all false. (coughs) Understand what your real situation is. Understand what you're doing to yourself. Understand what it is that you're doing to the people around you. Take a good, hard look at your situation. And if you need to cry about it, cry about it. But we don't leave it there. Because he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That is the hope. We don't end ever in despair. As much as our situation is hopeless on our own, which can cause us to grieve. As Christians, we are certainly people of hope, because the Lord will lift us up. He shows favor to the humble, because that's where we finally are getting it. It's not about us. It's all about him. And then we conclude with the section. If that's how we are, if the whole problem, the whole breakdown has to do with our relationship with God and with other people, putting our own desires before our love for God and love for neighbor, then of course, the answer, humility before God and also humility before other people. And so he says, finish off this section. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The idea here, when it talks about judging, this comes up, quite a bit in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. Um, James obviously talks about it. That not judging other people has nothing to do with not being able to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil. It has nothing to do with not teaching about what's right and wrong and what's good and evil. And that's one of the things we're doing right now. But it does mean that we are not to condemn anyone or to say that there's anyone who is beyond God's salvation who is um, so undeserving of our respect or of God's love that we just write them off completely. Because that's what we are never to do. Because apart from God's grace, that's who we are. And so he says, we don't speak against other people. We don't talk bad about others. And he says, the reason for this, <clears throat> one of the reasons, big reasons, is because when we do that, as we're actually sitting in judgment on the law of God. What does he mean by that? 
Well, if the law of God says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and what we do is say, I will love my neighbor as myself, as long as, as, long as that doesn't conflict with any of my desires. <laughs> I will love my neighbor as myself in these ways, or with these people, but not with those people, or not in this situation. Then what we're doing is, in, with those people or in that situation, we're saying, in this case, I know better than the law of God. In this case, that law is bad law. And James says, you cannot be keeping God's law if you're constantly sitting in judgment on it and saying, in this case, I'm not going to keep it. In this case, I'm not going to keep it. It's a bad law. He says, if you really want to submit to God, that also involves keeping his law, submitting to that, and not trying to sit in judgment on it and try to decide when it's a good law and a bad law. And so when he says, we're here to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he means it. When he says, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, he means it. And in fact, he says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And there again, there again, we have the good news. Because not only does it free us up, there's only one who can be that judge, and it's not us. So guess what that does? It means we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to always be wondering, you know, trying to figure out who do I need to reject? Because that's already been made clear. We don't reject anybody. And so we see Jesus going to the house going to the house of Simon. But while he's there, what happens? He's not turning over money changers' tables there. But we have a woman who comes to him, Luke chapter 7. A woman who has lived a sinful life. Everybody knows it. And she comes, and she breaks her jar of perfume. And she cries at his feet. And he doesn't say to her, you are a sinner, and therefore you are condemned. But he says instead, your sins are forgiven. John 3.16 says, For God ah, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on from there. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. May we be those who seek to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we be those who seek to love our neighbors as ourselves, not in our own strength, but through his spirit, through his power. May we be those who are completely different from the whole rest of the world, but who recognize that we have been sent into the world, not to judge them, but to tell them of the one who loves them so much that he came to save them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.